morning, everyone. My name's Eleanor, and um, I'll be leading us in prayer this morning, as well as reading uh, our second uh, reading from uh, John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. Uh, let's pray first. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day where we can come together to worship you, pray, sing your praises, and hear your word. Thank you for giving us your word that shows us the way to everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Settle our thoughts and help us to put aside the busyness and distractions of this week. In your mercy, open our hearts and minds to receive your word so that we may understand and be changed by it. Help our brother Roy as he teaches from your word this morning. Help him to teach the gospel faithfully and clearly. To the glory of your holy name and for the sake of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. So yes, if you could uh, open your uh, Bibles up to uh, the book of John, chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. For anyone who doesn't have a Bible, I believe there's some on the table at the back. Just give you a moment to find that. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Uh, so everyone should have a copy of this. And you're probably going to need it today in order to follow. Um, if you don't have a copy, there's probably one around you somewhere, or Mitch has some extras up the back. You look good? All right. Uh, so some of you will remember back a couple of years ago when we first planted this church that I was rocking a moustache for a little while. And at one point, Matt kindly complimented my efforts by saying to me, that is a glorious moustache, Roy. Now, you may or may not like moustaches, but that's not the point. The point is that's one of the few times in recent history I can recall the term glorious being used in conversation. Glory is a word that just doesn't come up anymore. It's all over the Bible, but it's not a term used outside of the religious realm very much. So when we come to John 17 and all this talk about glory and glorification, many of us may be wondering what exactly is God's glory? Now, in answering this question, we need to maintain an important distinction 
the distinction between the mystery of God's inmost life within the Trinity and all the works by which God reveals himself and communicates life within the created order. God has been in his glory within himself since eternity past, but God also reveals his glory to us in time in the created realm. And within the life of God himself, God's glory is not one of his attributes like his goodness, his holiness, or his power. Rather, God's glory can be thought of as the perfection of those attributes. The late Tim Keller described God's glory in himself as at least the combined magnitude of all God's attributes and qualities put together. Now, more often in the Bible, however, God's glory surrounds his revelation of himself to us within the created order. God's glory emanates from him the way light emanates from the sun. Humans experience God's glory as brilliant light, overwhelming greatness, and indescribable delight and terror all at the same time. In the Old Testament, God's glory is associated with physical appearances of God, like in the burning bush or in angels. His glory is a devouring fire shrouded with clouds at Mount Sinai and leading Israel through the wilderness. God's glory fills the tabernacle and the temple. And in the Psalms, God's glory rests in his mighty works manifest in creation. When we come to John's gospel, however, there is a shift in how God's glory is revealed. In chapter 1 of John's gospel, we are told in verse 14 that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son. So in Jesus, God's glory comes to us in a new way. God's glory is made manifest not in devouring fire, thick cloud or shining brightness, but in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind, though, this is all in reference to God's glory as it comes to us in the created order, not in the inmost life of the Trinity himself. So we need to keep these two categories in mind as we approach John 17. The glory of God revealed in creation and the glory of God within himself. And now I think we're ready to get into the text. So everyone should have a handout. And if you take a look, you'll see that I've diagrammed the text for you as a chiasm. Now, a chiasm is a literary structure found in ancient writing. And what it does is it presents complementary ideas in a sandwich form. So in this example, verse 1 and verse 5, labelled A, they correspond to one another with the Father asked to glorify the Son. And then in the two lines labelled B, we get the opposite. The Son glorifies the Father. 
And then in between these complementary ideas is C, Jesus' statement about the nature of eternal life consisting in knowledge of the Father and the Son. Now, before we deal with the correspondence between the layers, let's notice how verse 1 is in parallel with verse 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you, just as you have granted your Son authority over all people, so that your Son may give eternal life to all those you have given him. So do you see the parallel? The first line of verse 1 makes a statement about something the Father will do. Glorify the Son. Followed by the purpose statement. So that. Followed by something the Son will do. Glorify the Father. And then there is the connective. Just as. And the pattern repeats. The first line of verse 2 makes a statement about something the Father has done. He has given the Son authority over all people, followed by the purpose statement, so that, followed by something the Son will do. He will give eternal life to all those the Father has given him. Verse 1 and verse 2 are in parallel with one another. Now, you may notice that I have chosen to render the word at the start of verse 2 as just as. Now, I'd better explain myself here because uh, the NIV has the word for. Now, this little connective word in the original manuscripts is pathos. And this word is literally translated as just as or insofar as. Pathos normally carries with it the idea of comparison or equivalence. And what makes the most sense here is the use of pathos to compare two concepts. By using this connective word, John is supposing an an analogical connection between verse 1 and verse 2. And by this analogy, we can come to grips with what he means here by the glory of God. So in verse 1, Jesus asks the Father to glorify him so that Jesus may glorify the Father. And then in verse 2, Jesus makes his comparison, just as, just like, in the same way, the Father gave authority to Jesus over all people so that he may give eternal life to all those the Father has given him. In verses 1 and 2, the glorification of the Son is compared to the Father's gift to the Son of authority over all people. And the glorification of the Father is compared to the Son giving eternal life to an elect subset of those people. Now, another way of saying this is that verse 2 explains what is meant by verse 1. They are parallel statements. And so, the basis of the glory of the Son in verse 1 and 2 is his authority, his federal headship over all mankind. 
and the basis of the glory of the Father is the work of the Son to give eternal life to an elect subset of mankind. Now, if you've been paying attention, you should be able to see that the references to God's glory here is about his glory revealed in the created order. Just as the Father glorified the Son by giving him authority on earth, the Son pledges to use that authority to save the elect, which in turn brings glory to the Father on earth. Now, I used a phrase before which you may not be familiar with, but I think it might help bring some clarity. I said that the Son was made federal head over mankind. Now, this is just another way of saying what verse 2 says. Jesus was given authority over mankind. Because what does it mean to have authority? Well, yes, it means to be the boss, but it also means to take responsibility for others. If mankind is like a ship, Jesus is that ship's captain. If mankind is like a nation, Jesus is that nation's president. And if mankind is like a family, Jesus is that nation's, that family's head. And that is his glory here. The glory of the one who sits at the head of the table. The glory of the one who assumes responsibility and authority. To have glory can mean to have gravitas, to have weight and importance and responsibility. It's not just a blessing, but a potential burden too. Now remember that reference I made before to John 1 verse 14? I'll read it again. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. So in John 1, in an explicit reference to the incarnation, the word become flesh, the doctrine of God become man, is connected to this statement about our seeing his glory. In John 1.14, the glory of Christ is his incarnation. It is the revelation of God in the created order becoming like us as our federal head our ship's captain, our president, the one who represents us and is responsible for us. It is in the words of verse 2, the authority he has over all people. Now, the clearest place in the New Testament which speaks about this idea of federal headship is Romans 5. There, the Apostle Paul contrasts Jesus' headship over mankind to Adam's headship over mankind. Paul explains that just as the first Adam was responsible for all people, now Jesus, the second Adam, is responsible for all people. So turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans 5 from verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people 
because all sinned. Now, if you just jump down to verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Paul is saying that our original federal head, Adam, acted faithlessly in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus, our new federal head, acted faithfully in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is saying that Adam disobeyed at a tree, but Jesus obeyed on a tree. He is saying that Adam reached for blessing that wasn't his to take, but Jesus took the curse that wasn't his to bear. He is saying that Adam seized the fruit at the wrong time, but Jesus died for the ungodly at just the right time. And that time is here in John 17, verse 1. The hour has come for the Father to glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify the Father. Just as the Father glorified the Son in the Incarnation, so that the Son might glorify the Father by laying his life down to grant eternal life to the elect. Now, let's have a quick look at how verses 4 and 5 complement verses 1 and 2. Now, you should be able to see in your diagram how the lines labelled A and B at the top of the page correspond to the lines labelled A and B at the bottom. In the two lines labelled A, the Father glorifies the Son, and in the two lines labelled B, the Son glorifies the Father. And here is where we can distinguish between the glory of God revealed in the created order and the glory of God in the life of God himself. Verse 1 is clearly a reference to God's glory in creation, because as we have seen, it's connected in verse 2 to his incarnation and his assuming authority over all people. But verse 5 is a reference to God's glory within himself. Jesus asks to be glorified with the glory he had with the Father before the world began. And now have a look at how heaven and earth are contrasted in verses 4 and 5. Jesus says in verse 4 that he has brought glory to his Father on earth by his work. This is, of course, the work of his perfect life and death, which here on the eve of the crucifixion is as good as finished. This is the work which is only possible because of his incarnation. It is possible because the Father glorified Jesus in the created order, giving him authority over all people making him our federal head. And because of this, because the Son has done the work which brings the Father glory on earth, in verse 5, Jesus asks the Father to bring him glory in heaven. Jesus asks that he be reinstated to the glory he had with his Father before the world began, that is, within the life of God himself. Now, this could sound like a zero-sum game for Jesus, but it's not, 
because he's reinstated in his glory as a man. He's reinstated in the glory he had before the world began, but he brings with him something he didn't have before. He brings with him a human nature, and not only his human nature, but as federal head, he brings with him, the end of verse 2, all those given to him by the Father. Jesus, our ship's captain, our nation's president, the head of our family, is asking his father to return to the glory he had in eternity past and to bring us along with him. In his incarnation, Jesus crossed a chasm. He descended from within the life of God himself down to the created order, from the creator to the creation, from heaven to earth. It's like he stepped through a portal to join us here, to dwell with us. But then at the cross, he stepped through another portal, the portal of death, taking him down all the way to below the earth where he finds us locked in a cage. But he doesn't just open the cage and let us out. Instead, he pulls us out, wraps us in his arms, and then explodes upwards carrying us back to heaven with him, back to the very life of God in himself. Now, one final connection here before we move on. Uh, On your diagram, look at how all the blue bits kind of line up. So in verse 2, there's a contrast made between all people and all those you've given him. And in verses 4 and 5, there's a contrast made between on earth and in heaven. And who is it who is on earth? Well, all people, of course. And who is it who Jesus takes to heaven? All those the Father gives the Son. The Father granting authority to Jesus over all people in verse 2 results in the Son bringing glory to the Father on earth in verse 4 and the Son giving eternal life to the elect in the second half of verse 2 results in the Father glorifying the Son in heaven in verse 5. Okay, so we've dealt with the outside of the chiasm. Now we turn to the meat in the middle. Verse 3. The central truth emphasized in these verses. Here in verse 3, we get the takeaway point for us. So if you've zoned out, tune in now for the last couple of minutes. Verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you have sent. Jesus is explicit that there is just one true God, and that to have eternal life is to know him which involves knowing Jesus who he sent. To pass from the temporal realm of the created order to the eternal realm of the life of God, it doesn't involve a spaceship or a teleporter or even a mystical practice. It involves knowledge of the true God. Now, what connects verse 3 to the previous verses 
is this idea of eternal life. We have seen that the Father glorified Jesus in creation by making him incarnate, by giving him authority, by making him federal head over all people, so that Jesus would glorify the Father by giving eternal life to some people. Now, in grasping this, the obvious question to ask is, am I one of those people? Am I one of those the Father has given the Son? Am I someone who belongs on earth or in heaven? Do I have eternal life? And in verse 3, we get the answer. If you know God and his Son whom he sent, then you possess eternal life. It is a question of knowing, not of doing, of receiving, not of achieving, of perceiving, not of performance. If you have come to see God as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have life and life to the full which is not some far-off state experienced only after physical death. It is now. Jesus says, now is eternal life. Even true Christians get the wrong idea about this. Because we think of eternity as a time word. And we experience time in the created order more or less as a straight line. So born here, school here, job here, marriage, kids retirement, death, all points along a two-dimensional line. And so when we think about eternal life, we tend to simply extend that line far into the future and beyond death. We think of the line just continuing on and on and on with us moving along it forever. But in doing so, we fail to distinguish between the created order and the life of God. Because eternal life is not really about time. Eternal life is not just more quantity of life, it's a totally different quality of life. Eternal life transcends our puny conceptions of time. The eternal life, the eternal life of God, is qualitatively different to the created realm. They are two different realities. Now, this is a, a very insufficient illustration, but it might help us. So rather than thinking of eternal life as a line which extends into forever, we would be better off taking that line and moving it 90 degrees so it becomes a point in front of us, a moment even, a moment of perfect knowledge of love of God which we move towards and stare down. As we move towards it, we become more and more captivated and consumed by it until we are filled and surrounded by it, until we are in it, joined to it, held by it. In John's gospel, eternal life comes to those who believe in Jesus. We all know that. John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But here in John 17, verse 3, the emphasis is not on believing, but on knowing, on knowing God through knowing Jesus. 
We must come to know him. We must trust him. We must come to be in him. He has revealed his glory to us by being made man on earth, and he has revealed the Father in heaven to us. And of course, knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ involves fellowship, trust, personal relationship, faith. It involves both gnosis, knowledge, and pistis, trust. And this kind of makes sense, right? If Jesus is the captain of our ship, the president of our nation, the head of our family, then we must know him and we must trust him. Who lives in a country but doesn't know who the president is? Who travels in a ship without trusting the captain? Who is part of a family but doesn't have a relationship with the one who sits at the head of the table? So the question is, do you know him? Are you in him? Have you climbed on board the ship? Have you pledged allegiance to the president? Have you accepted the authority of the one who is head over God's family? Verse 3 says that to have eternal life is about knowing, not doing. It's being in the ship that matters, not once you do, once you're in. Whether you're directly working for the captain by raising the sail, or you're below the deck sweeping the floor. Either way, you are safely inside trusting the captain to bring you to shore. But it's also true that either way, you are hard at work. Your primary occupation is contributing to the mission of the captain. Your primary community is the other sailors. Your primary concern is to help the ship function and to help other people climb on board so they can be safe too. If you're standing around on the deck not contributing, I need to say to you, you are not really in the ship at all, not in the ways that really matter. So I'd like to drop the analogy and give you some real-world self-diagnostic questions you can ask yourself. Do you say that you know and trust Jesus, but you are not a committed member of a local church body somewhere? Do you say that you follow Jesus, but you are not giving an appropriate amount, an appropriate percentage of your income to the poor and to the church? Do you say you are a Christian, but you are not concerned to evangelize the lost? Do you say that you are a disciple, but you are not systematically reading through your Bible? Do you say that you know God, but you have no confidence that you possess eternal life? Or do you say that you do have eternal life, but you are not actively engaged in putting your sin to death? If you answer yes to any of those questions, I need to say to you today, it sounds like you may not know the only true God. You may not be one the Father has given the Son you may not have eternal life. 
Now, you might think I'm going beyond the text here because verse 3 is clearly about knowledge of God and relationship with God, not about works. But remember, eternal life is an altogether different quality of life. It is a life where we are transfixed and captivated by God now, bound up into the life of God in himself. We're not standing around waiting for it. We have it now, and so we live like it. Our lives are characterized, not perfectly, but truly, by a clear and obvious devotion to Christ. Now, please don't experience these words as condemning. For the word of God comes to us as gifts before rules. Salvation is before Sinai, grace before law, relief before regulation, and comfort before commandment. But if you are feeling conviction, if you are feeling uncomfortable or angry or defensive, then know that the offer of the gospel is held out to you right now, and not by me, but by God himself. All you need to do is accept the gift, receive the grace, turn away from sin and towards Christ. Repentance and faith, it's all one movement, one motion, that when it comes, comes as sweet relief and realization. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you have sent. Amen.